ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. What I'd like to have right now... Where the big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Well, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome once again to Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here with Chad, as ever. How are you doing, Chad? Doing pretty good this morning, Parv. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Um, And uh, we have a little bit of news, don't we? Uh, We have uh, a new uh, Facebook page. Um, which has been quite lively, hasn't it? You know, it's only been up a couple of days as, at the time of recording, and there are quite a few people on there. So if you're a listener to this show, um, you if you type in to the search thing on uh, Facebook, PWO-PTBN uh, Podcast Network, um, you'll find uh, kind of a Facebook page. So g- give us a like, and uh, you can check that for news, and you can interact with us like... Um, I put up a question, you know, let us know if you have any questions or comments. And we've, we've got a couple, Chad, um, and I only put that up a couple of hours ago. So um, that looks like a, it's going to be a fun new way to interact with us without, you know, going through the rigmarole of joining uh, pro wrestling only and all the rest of it. Right, Chad? Yeah, it's just a another alternative where you can interact with us. Um, we should be recording, letting people know when we're recording um, probably start putting up some random other topics to get some discussion going. So yeah, give us a like. Yeah, and uh, you can also uh, tweet Chad on his uh, on his Twitter handle too. Yeah, at Big Boys Play WCW there. So uh, yeah, I, and I will uh, I will get to some of the questions that you've asked us at the at the end of the show. Um, but let's um, we're recording uh, we're, we're talking about Clash of the Champions seventeen today. Um, uh, hot off the heels of uh, Halloween Havoc 91. It's time for the Wrestling Observer Extra. Wrestling Observer Extra. With Dave Meltzer. Uh, October the 28th. Um, and uh, this is October the 28th, 1991. Now, I did uh, read from this last time, but I've got a little bit of news that I missed, which is that on Monday, the WWF terminated their relationship with Ricky Steamboat in a quit fired scenario. Steamboat was unhappy that his promised big push never materialised and was also unhappy about the money that he was getting paid. He joined uh, Titan in January of 1991 on a three-year deal. Um, In fact, it was a two-year deal. It ran all the way until 1993. Uh, But he didn't go on the road full-time until April. So he earned only $52,000, which is uh, about the level that WCW were paying guys like Van Hammer and Johnny B. Bad. So you can understand why Steamboat might be unhappy. Uh, the final, the straw that broke the camel's back was at Monday tapings, he was asked to do jobs to IRS and The Undertaker. Uh, Steamboat was reported as saying he'd do jobs to anyone at house shows, but not on TV because of the reputation he'd worked so hard to build up. When he refused a job to IRS, Vince fired him on the spot and wouldn't even issue him a plane ticket home. What do you think of that, Chad? <laughs> well, um, I mean, Steamboat is kind of one of these guys where we've seen him a couple of times now throughout his career where he's had issues with management um, when he won the Intercontinental title in 1987 
and then went to uh, went back to the NWA and then kind of fell out of the NWA fairly quickly in what about August or September of uh, 1989 and then uh, now he's back in the WWF. This was a really poor run. Uh, the vignettes that accompanied him back with the dragon images I thought were very lame and uh, didn't really fit into a lot of the other stuff that was going on in 1991 WWF where they seemed to be, um, and I don't know, I wouldn't say <laughs> it's kind of odd to say more serious when you're talking about The Undertaker and Jake the Snake biting people with the snake. But, uh, darker, darker. But, yeah, I'd say darker. That's a good word for it. And more, uh, kind of more Memphis-esque in a lot of ways with a lot of intertwining stuff and... Steamboat seemed really lost in the shuffle there, so I mean, not not really a surprise. For, for, I mean, for a guy who's thought of as such a professional, uh, everybody thinks of Steamboat as like a model professional wrestler, right? Um, he he always had real heat with Vince. It seems to me, like you know, the two he basically ends up getting fired by Vince twice, um, which is which is interesting to me because now they always present Steamboat as being this legend and things. I guess it's because he's had a job there for a long time as a road agent, right? Uh, yeah, I think um, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess he's kind of water under the bridge now because they're he, he does a lot of stuff for him. I think he's still employed with them. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. Um. So November the fourth, and it appears that Bobby Eaton is going to be turning heel soon, um, and the Freebirds have turned face. <laughs> Um, so there we go. There we go. That's for one for Matt D there with the Freebirds turning uh, face after all. Um, apparently they're using way too much tinny fake noise at the TV shows. But Melter says it's unnecessary for Van Hammer's entrance. Um, Melter says that this TV, this fake uh, kind of piped in crowd noise is necessary for Van Hammer's awful entrances and to cover up We Want Flair chants when Bill Kazmaier comes out. So... <laughs> There we go. And this is going to be an ongoing theme uh, today. Meltzer has got it in. for He hates Van Hammer. He's <laughs> like a new guy on Meltzer's radar. Every single opportunity, he buries the guy. <laughs> Joe Blanchard, uh, former owner of Southwest Championship Wrestling, of course, has been fired uh, because of uh, some fiasco over the ropes being too short for the ring at this uh, show that they were running in Phoenix. So the whole card had to be cancelled because the ropes were too short for the ring. <laughs> Some claim uh, that he's just a scapegoat for disorganization stemming from the front office. Can you believe that, Chad? That uh, it was uh, was it Joe Blanchard's fault, or do you think it was the front office incompetence? Probably. I, I guess I would say in this specific situation, I'd probably blame Blanchard since he was come to the local guy in charge, but. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, we talked a little bit last week about the Chamber of Horrors being kind of WCW-esque, and this is uh, a little WCW-esque. And actually, uh, I was talking to somebody on Facebook, Aaron George, um, yesterday a little bit about this, and he had a good point where, like, you know what, I did bring up kind of the gobbledygooker uh, last week, or last time as the WWF kind of getting a pass where WCW doesn't. And we sort of surmised that it may be because WWF's gaffes are just kind of misfires. And whereas uh, WCW's gaffes seem to have kind of a pr- production malfunction or a clumsy aspect to them. 
Right. Uh, like, like would the lever keep fall kept falling down in the chamber of horrors, this situation, um, various other kind of production issues that'll happen throughout the years. I remember 1998, one that sticks out is Raph chasing Chris Jericho backstage in a uh, Thunder episode and the camera stops and they start laughing at each other and we're still seeing it. <laughs> so just kind of more clumsier uh, aspects, which I think is a pretty good point. Yes, I mean, it's try. I don't think it's any uh, stretch to say that WS production was always better than WCW's. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess from that standpoint, I can see how you, in your mind you could just say, like, well, you know, WWF, they, they they really misfired on this one, but WCW really doesn't have their shit together, and uh, yeah. that can make WCW look poor in retrospect. Okay, um, finally on this uh, uh, particular edition of the uh, Observer, Meltzer did not like the tombstones Halloween Havoc. He says they should have at least had a sense of humor to them, and uh, so he wasn't happy about the tombstones. Uh, you liked those tombstones, didn't you, uh, Chad? <laughs> I think that adds to the scene, but I, I mean, I didn't read any of them except the Minnesota Twins one, but that seems like a weird thing for him to have an axe to grind about. <laughs> Strange. I mean, the tombstones, of all things. Mount Melter's a bit cranky in November uh, 1991. <laughs> um, <laughs> November the 11th, and Gene Anderson died, age 52. He didn't really give him one of his um, special obit treatments, which is a bit disappointing. Yeah, those... Um... I wouldn't say those started, I mean, now they're huge, upwards yeah. of eight to 10,000 words for somebody that's you know, you considered a legend, like a Hall of Fame caliber uh, performer. Um, you know, thinking about like the Buddy Rose one he did about five years ago. But even back in that time, I mean, Andre the Giant, I guess just because at that point in time, everything was mostly mailed, so he was limited on space. But somebody like Andre the Giant, when he dies in January 93, he gets a fairly lengthy obit, but we're still talking about uh, 3,000 words, where you know if somebody, his stature died uh, now, it'd be huge. Well, I mean, it's not too much of a spoiler, but the, the following week, uh, Dick the Bruiser dies, and he gives, yes. uh, he gives Dick the Bruiser like four or five pages he gives gene anderson like one paragraph so i i, yeah. I, I don't know he seems like gene anderson gets a bit short change on the obit so uh, yeah dick the bruiser is one of the first uh, ones that i think started kind of long forming the obits to what they would have become today sure uh okay well um in other news uh scott steiner is back from injury um and i think we we see him on this show uh coming up um, a DDP has started tagging with the Diamond Stud in a team called the Diamond Exchange. <laughs> Seems rubbish to me, that name. Um, Meltzer says he's already better than guys like Oz and Van Hammer, although considering their caliber, that's hardly a surprise. So, yet another... You count the digs he takes of Van Hammer here. Um, DDP <laughs> apparently better than Van Hammer already. <laughs> um you, yeah. Real quickly, just yeah. on that, you wouldn't think that tag team would ever amount to uh, two of the biggest stars late in the 90s, and they did. No, like, it's, just it's seeing a, them now. It's amazing to, to think what... I mean, I was thinking that when I saw uh, Diamond Stud in the show, actually. Well, I mean, we'll get to it later. Um, yes. Uh, although, I, I, I do feel I'm more down on... I don't, I'm not as high on DDP as most other people, I feel. I don't even like his late 90s stuff that much. Just don't like... Yeah. 
I'm uh, looking forward to convincing you, turning you around on that when we get there. Okay. Um, now, Marcus Bagwell um, apparently had a tryout uh, in which he did a job for Mike Graham. Uh, although he looked good, reports are that the office are disappointed in Bagwell. Um, and that won't be the first time I say that, I'm sure. <laughs> um Apparently, uh, Van Hammer is just on... Uh, so here's more Van Hammer stuff. Apparently, Van Hammer is just as good on interviews as he is in the ring. Arn Anderson is having to put him over on most nights uh, on house shows. And people are, have been calling Meltzer after those matches as if they are reporting on a funeral. So, there we go. Van Hammer's just terrible all round. And uh, his matches with Arn Anderson aren't very good. Um, I don't know why he makes a point to, you know, he's really got it in for Van Hammer. Meltzer yeah, th- I mean, they gave him a little bit of a push, but it's, it's not like they were, I, I mean, it's, it's this is a very quick push. You know what I mean? It's not like we had one to two years of Van Hammer being stuffed down our throats. I think they realized what the game was pretty quickly, so... Meltzer thinks the handling uh, of uh, Wyndham's injury has been really clumsy um, because basically what happens is Wyndham gets injured but then they've taped a bunch of matches with Wyndham on them before the injury so they basically redub the commentary and make out like he's got a bad wrist in the matches on the commentary uh, Meltzer says this is very clumsy um, did you see any matches uh, like this where Wyndham was not injured but they were claim, claiming he was on, on the commentary yeah there's there's a couple uh like this that i have seen and it, it is really bad i don't quite understand um <laughs> kind of why i mean i understand why they did the injury angle to some extent but i would have just canned the matches afterwards because it is awkward where they're talking about him favoring his wrist and he's not at all so it's <laughs> it's, it's very kind of shoehorned in um, November the 18th, as I mentioned, Dick the Bruiser died, long bio there. Uh, Marcus Bagwell had another tryout on a TV taping, and uh, that time he got a good reception. Um, now, apparently, uh, Medusa cut a promo on Sting, saying it would be a cold day in hell before he could get his Stinger near her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what the flying <laughs> fuck? Have you seen that? This is, yes, this is a uh, promo right from the... Um right from the pages of the sensational Sherry ultimate warrior Royal rumble 91 playbook. Um, I, I, I seem to recall they were in the aisle way when this happens and, uh, and yeah, Medusa's kind of going after staying and stings like an overexcited, uh, overexcited horny teenager talking about his stinger. It's, uh, it's it's one to watch. It's, it sounds it's uh, just. I mean, I've I've just written what the fuck in my uh, notes here, but uh, yes. Um, okay, well, more on Medusa and Sting in a bit. <laughs> um, apparently, uh, Teddy Long and Lady Blossom are going to get phased out soon, um, which is true, right? Teddy Long disappears after this. Does he come back at some point? Teddy Long, I can't remember. Um, sure, surely he. I, I don't know. Well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know he's with, like, Ice Train and all that down the line, but the line, yeah. I, I don't know in between them. Rhetorical question of the week from Meltzer. How come Johnny be bad when he debuted and had no clue as to what 
to do in the ring was push like crazy. And now that he's improved 1000% and gets over really strong and learns, his pay, and learns to play his gimmick second to none, he gets buried. While instead they push Van Hammer like he's the second coming, who is five times worse and not over <laughs> one-tenth as much. So, uh, what do you think of uh, Dave's rhetorical question there? <laughs> really hates Van Hammer. This is uh, getting to junk food dog levels here. Yes, uh, I think Dave needs to work on his grammar and his syntax because uh, that's a very, very long question, Dave. Uh, so. <laughs> um, Jerry Jarrett looks to be coming in as a co-booker for Dusty, but it's not a done deal. Seems like they talk about Jarrett coming in loads, and he never does, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, he seemed like a... Um, I guess he seemed like a good property to have, kind of him and Bill Watts were, I guess, the big two still that would always be lingering around this time. Um, now that Joe Petticino's took over for the uh, for the Texas group as global, um, so Jarrett was available. I, I mean, I guess the last thing that I know about him being readily doing something was when Vince is on the steroid trial and. Yeah. You know, like if he went to jail, Jarrett was going to have a big uh, say in what the day-to-day operations look like. I always get the impression that Jarrett's always a guy that people are ringing up all the time. Like informally off the books, like, you know, here's the situation, how do I book this type thing? That's the impression I always get from this period, that he's like a guy to pick up the phone to. So, that like, uh, I get the impression that, like, didn't Vince, even, even Vince once in a while would call Jarrett up to try to book him out of a hole? Yes. Like a consultor, a yeah, consulting yeah, like in, but like thing. not paid or anything, just like informal, you know, pick up the mm. phone and have a like talk talk over the ideas with him or whatever. Um, apparently, uh, Starcade is going to be devoted to the Battle Bowl because WCW wants to be doing all theme shows now. They want all of their shows to have a different theme, um, and this at a time when the WWF is adding title matches to its theme shows. Um, so I, I guess uh, Ismail is suggesting that this is a backward step by WCW, or I don't know. I, I, I always kind of thought it was a shame when they started transitioning Survivor Series um, away from the traditional format. I didn't like Survivor Series 92 that much. Yeah, uh, 91 is the first one of that with Hogan versus Taker Yeah. Um, as the title match, and... I mean, I think that's more just a sign of, I mean, now I don't think you could ever do a Survivor Series in the traditional sense because of the the main events, kind of. I mean, at, at the point in time, 87, 88, 89, and 90, the, the first four um, where it was all the elimination style matches, those were guys you didn't see aligned that much during the syndicated TV um, I'd, I'd say 91, you started seeing more, I guess, consequential TV uh, and matchups on superstars and stuff like that. Um, even, you know, pretty big stuff like uh, Damien getting killed and junk like that. Uh, uh, Taker locking I, I, Warrior in the casket. I don't think the Rush is strong enough to do it. Uh, yeah, that's true, too. Or, or deep enough, should I say. Especially I mean, they, in 92. Yeah, because uh, they, I mean, they basically start culling guys WF around this time. Uh, from our point of view, though, from the WCW point of view, why I've never understood. I mean, we'll obviously talk about it later. I've never understood why they chose Starcade to do that. You know, that's their big show. Yeah. Why, why do they, you know, make um, 
make one of the make the super brawl that or something. You know, I don't right. understand why they have to screw around with Starcade. Um, yeah, this this will be three Starcades in a row where they've had some gimmick aspect, and um, I mean we'll get into this on our next show, but. I think the Lethal Lottery overall is uh, one of the more polarizing, I guess, concepts that uh, they ever did, where some people love it, some people hate it. I think there's some revisionist that goes into, I I would say, the fondness of it, which kind of tips my hand on where I fall. But uh, we will see when I rewatch the show. I mean, I just as a little tea, I think it's a great idea. I just don't know why they have to devote Starcade to it, you know? Right. Um, okay, uh, Mr. Hughes working main, against main event talent such as uh, Rick Steiner in particular with his sunglasses on during the match and those glasses not breaking exposes the business worse than anything else. Agree with that? <laughs> oh my God, this is like the, the Meltzers of random content. <laughs> it's just like, it's like he's just really in a bad mood in November. Yeah, the, the, I mean, of all the things to pick on, the tombstones and all these glasses. Van uh, Hammer uh, in general, yeah. Um, he says Sting vs. Cactus Jack's submission or surrender match uh, was probably the best TV match he's seen since Flair vs. Funk I quit back in 1989. Big claim. You seen that one? Yeah, we will be uh, watching that with our supplemental viewing. Um, it's it's very good. I don't know if I would say it's even the best TV match of the year. I'd probably have the Pillman Flair match from April and uh, ahead he, of it. He does mention that match, Melts, so yeah. well. He, he says maybe that one. Um, yeah. November the 25th. Um, big bit on the steroid scandal here, which I won't go into. But uh, Meltzer's in, like, his heavy-hitting journalism mode. He starts it with a quote from uh, Joseph Goebbels. <laughs> and, and he writes under it, Propaganda Minister to, Alpha, uh, to Adolf Hitler, you know. <laughs> and it's written there, um, you know, better to tell one big lie than a series of small lies or whatever. And, um, yes, uh, so there's uh, Meltzer going for his uh, Pulitzer Prize in journalism or whatever. Uh, <laughs> um Steamboat will probably debut at the Clash. Uh, his attorney is claiming that the WWF breached his contract in two areas, which nullifies his no-compete clause. So there we go. Because apparently Steamboat was promised a big push or something, and uh, they weren't kind of using him in that capacity. Um, there was a si- And he was fired when he had two years left on his contract, so they can't tell him not to go to another company or something like that. Right, yeah. Uh, usually if you're fired, you get a... Uh a, a no compete um if you're kind of released or asked out then they may be a no compete tacked on you're start you're seeing that with alberto del rio uh kind of right now where he was sort of suddenly released and basically uh he was released with action so he, he essentially got fired and he immediately went to triple a and basically dared him to dare wwe to sue him so and they're not gonna do nothing about it yeah um, yeah, and uh, apparently uh, WCW did write a letter to WF to try to, you know, get some clarification from Titan Towers, and they didn't write back, so they took that as a sign that they didn't care, so there yeah. we go. Um, there was serious consideration uh, into putting the belt on Rick Steiner for the Clash. Apparently, oh, um, Luger's contract runs from March to March and specifies a set number of live dates. And because he's been used so heavily in the past uh, nine months... They are almost out of dates. 
At the present uh, pace, he'd reach about December. Also, apparently, Luger has heat with the office for refusing to work a tour of England that they are planning for December because, um, a, you know, foreign dates aren't spe- specified in his contract. So Luger's like, I'm not going on this England tour because it's not in my contract to do it. And he didn't work the uh, Egg Dome Tokyo show either for that same reason. So um, so he, he's got a bit of heat with the with the office for that. Um, yet more terrible planning with WCW. It's written in the guy's contract. He's got this amount of dates, and you use them almost all of them up by. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's poor on their part. Um, kind of not seeing the big picture. Um, in light of the Magic Johnson story, uh, WCW has instituted a total ban on blood, both on TV and at arenas. Now, I didn't have time to look this up. What's the Magic Johnson story, uh, Chad? Any ideas? Well, this is when he. Um... It came out publicly that he was HIV positive. Uh, so, so I guess in there and around this time in basketball, because he retired immediately, but there was, uh, I guess, discussion because of the lack of education whether if he sweat profusely or bled on the court, if you could have, con- uh, you know, contracted the uh, the HIV through that way um, right. with other players. So, I, I mean, I guess they just took the initiative there. I don't know. But you wouldn't think there'd be much chance of, uh, you know, a professional wrestler having HIV, right? I'd say more hepatitis. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I mean, I don't... <laughs> I, I, would, I would think that testing probably should be done uh, fairly regularly on stuff like this. If you had to do a most likely to have HIV uh, ranking. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> I put Tom Zink way up. I was about to say Tom Zink. <laughs> Tom Zink was my number one. Oh, God. Um, yeah. I'd also put, uh, what's his name, Jason Hervey right up there as well. Uh, I mean, even... Uh, Let me see. Well, Flair. I mean, oh, he's, yeah, he's, he's certainly uh, yeah, been styling and profiling around. Yes. Um... There's going to be, uh, and the last bit of news I've got, there's going to be some sort of change regarding the uh, York Foundation coming up. Uh, but he doesn't know what it is. Maybe Eaton is going to turn. Uh, sorry, maybe uh, Ricky Morton's going to turn on someone, he thinks. But obviously that's not what happens. Yeah, it seems like the York Foundation, uh, I wonder if you think this, where overall, I mean, they're one of the more memorable, I would say, kind of small groups that really didn't do a whole lot. Um, like I like I don't know if it's just because I started watching WCW around this time, but mm-hmm. I remember the York Foundation years later. Even when I started getting on the internet, you know, and people would throw out like, "Oh, Marlena wasn't she Alexander York?" And I'd be like, "Oh yeah, you know, they had the York Foundation, which I really liked and I was fond of." But um, there's not there's not a lot going on. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in my book, uh, if I had to think about, you know, they, they, they probably wouldn't even be at Varsity Club standard for me. These yeah. Guys. Um, it's kind of a bit weird. Like, there's all these random guys, and it's like, it's no surprise to me that they chucked in. Who, who they chucked in there? Terry Taylor, Tommy Rich, Ricky Morton. It's like kind of guys who are just hanging around, and they've just shoved them all in there, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of... It sounds cool on concept that they've got these old kind of southern guys that are kind of lost on their path. And, 
you you know, if they could have got over that they really believed in the computer as like a way to revitalize their career, I think it'd have been much more beneficial. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, they're, they're not it's certainly not the worst. It, it wouldn't be as bad as uh, fucking um, Million Dollar Corporation, which was like a retirement home for real <laughs> kind of like you know Nikolai Volkov and you know. Bundy, you know, ten years after the fact and stuff like right, that. Right, so right. It wouldn't be the worst stable ever. Um, okay, well, ready to get on to the clash. Um, yeah, uh, not not a, uh, I guess not a big gap between the havoc and this clash. So that's why we're kind of light on the news. Yeah, and, and and as you saw, not really a lot of, lot of news. Just a lot of Meltzer kind of almost pretty bustering on his opinions on what's going on at the time so well, one thing i'll just say though before we get into the actual class show i guess he didn't speculate at this point in time as who is going to be in the uh, dangerous alliance um there is a tiny bit on the dangerous alliance in the very last one when he's talking about um teddy long and teddy long being phased out uh he, yeah. he more or less guesses that austin's going to be involved for example Okay. Um, and he knows that obviously Rude is going to be involved. Um, so, but I, th- I think it's kind of on the horizon. It's just coming type thing. So, um, he doesn't. He does know that the Dangerous Alliance is going to be a thing. I just forgot to mention it. Okay. Cool. Live November nineteenth. There's no time for fear. Only action. Lex Luger, Rick Steiner for the World Heavyweight Championship. Plus, the living legend, Sting. The arrogance of Rick Rude. Power and destiny collide. Also, Van Hammer, Ian News, and more. Prime time pain on Clash of the Champions. Live November 19th at 8.05 Eastern, exclusively on TBS. Um, so this is in the Savannah Civic Center, your neck of the woods, Chad. Um... I say, I say that it's probably about 100 miles away or something, isn't it? oh a lot more than that um, it's about 5 hours away so it's probably about 300 miles away um, Georgia's a pretty big state um, right, yeah. but yeah same home state um, and uh, it looks pretty packed there doesn't it I thought it looked really crowded and uh, you know decent crowd for WCW at this time it has, uh, almost 7,000 fans is what the stuff I've seen yeah uh, that's what Melsa says too, uh, but I thought it looked like a good, you know, looks. Uh, they made they made it look busy in there, on on TV. Um, obviously, it's uh, Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone, our commentary team, but they immediately throw over to Eric Bischoff and Missy Hyatt. Now Missy's got a perm at this point. Um, what, what do you think of her new hairstyle here? Because I'm not a big fan of this perm. Yeah, Missy. Um... I don't. I don't know with Missy. <laughs> Missy kind of up to this point. I thought when, when really when she first came on the scene in Mid South, I mean she was stunning. Um, you could certainly see why she was sort of presented the way she was, and throughout the uh, early portion of the '90s, while her personality hasn't exactly been my favorite, she's still uh, looked good. But now with the more I guess elaborate hair and um stuff like that i've kind of along with the still annoying personality it's uh kind of losing favor a little bit with me well she's very excited to be interviewing the new rookie marcus alexander bagwell um so there we go more on that later uh our first match and uh, this is a show of some pretty random matchups here 
Thomas Rich versus Big Josh. Now, apparently, there there is a bit of previous that uh, Ross says that they're former friends. I can't even remember that. Was uh, yeah. Rich uh, Big Josh's friend? Yeah, uh, Josh, the reason he came in was Tommy Rich was getting beat up and Josh got overzealous and jumped the railing. Um, and and Rich presented him as his, like, lumberjack friend from the north. Uh, so so Josh was introduced into the company by uh, Rich. Now, Thomas Rich uh, at this point, now what's going on with him? Why is he dressed as Barry Windham? <laughs> He does kind of have the uh, ponytail hair and uh, like the leather. leather. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Uh, and that, yeah, what's that like the top without the uh, like the jacket without the sleeves on? Yeah, yeah, like the little vest. Um, I guess the computer told him. <laughs> um, uh, and Russell and Soli, Gordon Soli and Lance Russell are still hanging around on the hotline. Yeah, and I still, I still don't understand this concept. So they're calling the matches on the hotline. I, I don't. I mean, how one, how expensive could that possibly be? Especially for this show where it's free on TV. So who, who's calling the hotline and spending all this money to hear announcing on a show you can get for free? Yeah, it's weird. Uh, but they're also trying to. Are they also trying to say that Russell and Soli are like your premium commentators? You can get Ross and Shivani for free, but if you want to pay, you can have these two. I, I would. Know. I would say in 1991, um, the opposite of that was in effect. <laughs> um, the um. So this is a lumberjack match, by the way. Right. And um, speaking of uh, Matt D's piece from Halloween Havoc. Oh God. Here are the Freebirds yet again stealing heat. Did you see that? There? Yeah, they were uh, still doing their, I guess, since they were in Georgia, the home turf of the Braves. Savannah is kind of one of those weird cities, I would just say overall, where, I mean, it's in Georgia, but it feels very disconnected from kind of the Atlanta portion of Georgia, where they have their own history, um, a very storied history, and it feels like a different state when you're down there. Um so whereas if you, if you travel like around where I live and, and up in the Atlanta suburb suburb area, you're going to see a lot of brave Falcon paraphernalia and then uh, Georgia Bulldog, the college University of Georgia. That is probably the biggest um, stuff you see out and worn. Um, whereas Savannah, I mean, I, I, I really don't. I mean, I guess they would be Braves fans, but they're so far away, you know, four and a half hours that it's not like they get a real local feeling of uh, of the Braves. But but the Freebirds still tried by tomahawk chopping and appeasing to them. They were definitely trying to uh, be as big a face to the crowd as they could. Uh, totally overshadowing what was going on in the ring. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now that Matt D wrote that, I could not, like, keep my eyes off of them uh when i see them at ringside like i was paying way more attention to them at times than the match yeah well no it's the same here but it was because they were banging the apron well that's true too they were wanting that drawing attention to themselves um now i don't have any I, i just thought this match was just kind of there uh, did you have any further notes on it, Jed? There's not a lot to this. Uh, I, d- I do still think we're seeing finally some improvements with Josh where 
he's not acting like he's an untrained wrestler, even though that was the narrative where now he's just going in and brawling instead of kind of trying to be a lumbering, clumsy idiot. Um, Pretty basic lumberjack action where one gets thrown out onto the side of the hill and they kind of take care of him till the baby faces come over and pound. And there's a big brawl outside with the lumberjacks. And it went, what, probably five or six minutes. It wasn't very long at all. And just a basic back and forth. I thought the punches looked good, but there wasn't a lot of substance to the match overall. And uh, the, the finish is that... Thomas Rich runs um, runs into the ropes, and Terrence Taylor actually ends up tripping him on purpose, and Josh hits the northern exposure for the win. So we're seeing a lot of turmoil in the York Foundation here. One and a half stars from me, one and three quarters from Meltzer. Yeah, I ended up going to... Um, just because I thought I thought the, uh, the punching between... There was a couple of exchanges between Rich and... Um, and Josh that were good. I mean, they were pretty stiff strikes, but again, just not a lot to it. Um, I don't. So, what's that? Tom uh, Rich has been fired by the Orc Foundation, essentially. Yeah, it looks like Rich is uh, out of favor with the Orc Foundation. So, the Orc Foundation is exploding right before our very eyes. See, see I always think that's a really like kind of buries the babyface if he's kicked out of the heel group. It's like, well, you're not good enough for us. Get out of it. You know. That's what it seems like to me. And he loses the match. It's like, okay, one-way ticket to, you know, very lower mid-card. Uh, um, uh, so let's think person. about some examples. Let's think about some examples where someone's been kicked out of a heel group and well, Nikolai, flourished. Nikolai Volkov uh, was kicked out and was basically became a jobber after that. Uh, what, from the uh, corporation? <laughs> We're still... Yeah, yeah, he was, do you remember? He was, uh, like, I know, but he was 52 years old and had cents <laughs> on his ass. Let him know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I guess evolution's pretty key because you had, uh, he had both Orton and Batista dissenting from that heel group, and Orton floundered uh, tremendously as a baby face yeah. when he left. Batista. That will be the only time you'll say that, Orton floundered. Oh, well. Every major push he's ever You got it, you got it. Uh, we may do a, a Orton special one-off on uh, where the big boys play with Brad, um, and then I'll, uh, I'll be absent for that one. No, you you've Marty got to sleeves. be attending. <laughs> you've got to be attending. Uh, and then Batista, though, I guess Batista flourished a little bit. Um, yeah. But, but it was kind of more he did it on his own. He wasn't necessarily kicked out. Like I he came to the conclusion. Luger kicked out of the Horseman. Yeah, that seems to me the more he did it on his own, too. I, I think that's the key there, where you can't be absolutely, like, kicked out. Like, we don't want you here. Um, because that was the case with Orton, where the Triple H literally gave him the thumbs down and they beat him up. Um, so so you, you sort of have to come to the own conclusion yourself and leave. What about Sting kicked out of the horseman? Numerous um, times. Yeah, that didn't that never worked in February as we saw. I mean he got injured, but hmm. Okay, well if anybody could think of a time when somebody's like this been kicked out of a heel group and done well. Because uh I, I think typically it sends the wrong message. 
Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting concept because it seems like one of these things that keep coming back in wrestling. And like you said, I, d- I don't remember when someone's been blankly kicked out at working uh, very much at all. It, it should be that the baby face says, I've had enough of this bullshit and turns on the, yeah, turns yeah. On the group, uh, as we'll see later on with a different turn on this show. Right. Um, okay, uh, next match then. Um and I, I just love, sometimes I love the concept that these two guys are just having a match for no particular reason. Firebreaker Chip versus Bobby Eaton. Completely random matchup. Um, I guess what they're fighting for to get in the top 10 rankings or whatever. Um, uh, face versus face do all this? Right, yeah, this is still Eaton as a face. Um, I, I don't know. This is just a match thrown out there. You know, I thought we saw some cool offense from Eaton, and I gave it two stars. Oh. Uh, Meltzer said gives it a star and a quarter. What did you think? Uh, I actually gave it a star and a quarter myself. Uh, Chip, Chip looked pretty rough in this match. He blows a crossbody uh, right off the start, and um, he's on top. For me, he's on top for too long. That's what I didn't like, and he did nothing interesting of a note. Um, very, he clearly struggled kind of in this role. Uh, there was a huge face pop when Eaton took over, and then I thought the finish was a little weird, where they do a backdrop from Eaton and it gets a three count, but it's one of those finishes where Chip kicked out right at yeah. the three count, and everybody acts confused at the end, where Eaton don't even know if he's won, the announcers don't know if he's won, um, the crowd don't know if he's won, so it's a very kind of confusing. I, I I really don't like that finish, especially with guys like this, where the way the match was worked and the way the crowd reacted, it was clear that they preferred Eaton here. So I don't really know why they felt the need to give Chip kind of that benefit of the doubt that he nearly kicked out or that he was an equal, more or less, with Eaton. Um, right. I don't know. I don't well, like this. One star for the match, one star for the backbreaker. That's basically what, what, what my rating is. Yeah. Um, the uh, I don't really get the point of Firebreaker Chip. I've never understood what what the point of him is. Yeah, sure. I I think it's just kind of holdover from the the uh, Desert Storm stuff, kind of with the armed forces and uh, I guess public service getting a rub. I don't know. It's it's not. I don't think he's around much after our next show. So, um, Sting, who at this point must have been having flashbacks to the Black Scorpion days, comes out, um, and uh, there is a a number of chiseled, kind of bodybuilding-looking men in black tights, carrying a box, carrying like a what would you call it? Like a. Uh, it looks kind of like a um, I don't know, like Aladdin. I picture yeah. coming out of that thing. It's very. I yeah, guess so Egyptian. They're yes. carrying like a kind of Middle Eastern themed uh, kind of bed, I guess I'd call it, with, you know, uh, very strange, weird scene. Um, then Medusa comes out, uh, dressed uh, again, almost like a belly dancer, I guess. And she dances provocatively over to uh, Sting and his Stinger. <laughs> Sting uh, doesn't know what to do. Um, doing all of this, and she's kind of like going quite. This is quite. This I thought this was quite raunchy for, for 1991 wrestling. Um, Sting is kind of bemused, but then he gives a, an excited yelp, 
which I thought was one of the lamest things I've ever seen. Um, and to save this from being totally atrocious, Luger comes out and block tackles his knee in a dastardly attack, uh, takes out his leg, which uh, made me pop. What do you What do you reckon about this uh, angle, Chad? <laughs> yeah, well, clearly the yell was uh, Luger's cue to come out. Because um, as soon as he yells, you see Luger jump out of the little thing. So Very good point. Yeah, Very so point. you know that Luger was waiting on the yell for him to come out. Um, and Luger gives a good attack. I thought this was kind of interesting that Luger was using, I guess, Abdullah and Cactus kind of to take out Sting, um, using him. So he was, the, I guess, the man behind the boxes. Uh, it gives Luger some credence and makes him seem like more of a mastermind than a lot of times they uh, did. So I enjoyed the angle, and then the beatdown was really good, and it set up the rest of the night, so that was smart too. Chad, is he really the mastermind? There's additional intrigue here. Is Luger really the mastermind behind this? More on that in a bit, I guess. Oh, okay. Because um, uh, I think it may be implied that there's another brain to be in this operation. Um, okay, the uh, next match is the Diamond Stud versus uh, the Z-Man, Tom Zenk. Um, but basically, during this entire match, which only goes for about a minute and 20 seconds, uh, we are treated to footage of string on a stretcher. Um, now, let, let's deal with the sting on the stretcher stuff first. How do you think they dealt with this? You know, sting uh, on a stretcher, he's being rushed to hospital... Kind of like a kind of old school Georgia angle, if anything, you know, uh, shades of like DBRC having to go to a hospital after the after the pile drivers or uh, numerous times when other guys have had to go to hospital. Um, what do you think of this one? Yeah, this was, I thought, pretty good. Um, the way they sold it, where Sting was laid out and they uh, they kind of sold it where he was very injured and out of commission, and there was a frantic pace to him because he did have the U.S. title match coming up. Um, so I thought they did a really good job in this regard, actually. Well, the only thing I wondered about is that, like, so is this Sting's first appearance back, is it? I can't remember now. Has uh, Sting been back for a while? Yeah, he's been back. Show? Yeah, he's so, been back. He was in Chamber of Horrors. And yeah. he was in, uh, he fought Nikita. So. Right, so if his leg is so weak that just one block shot from Luger can take him to hospital, what's he doing back in the ring? That was the only, that, like, I didn't, I I wasn't sure if the attack was devastating enough to send the guy to hospital. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that's, the, that's the only thing that had me scratching my head a bit for this. Yeah, I mean, Luger did uh, slam his leg down on the ramp but it wasn't that dastardly. Um, as for the match, what the flying fuck? Z-Man picks up a win. Why? <laughs> I, di- I didn't understand. what would- He basically gets a uh, diamond stud and a crucifix, and then um, we get a you know basically a heel beat down on a razor's edge afterwards. The diamond death drop, as it was known at that point. Um, any thoughts on this? I just thought it was completely random, giving... Zenk, who seems to be completely down out and buried, a win here. Yeah, I mean, I thought uh, the stud looked good with his top rope build, bulldog, and um, top rope sunset flip from Zink gets an air fall, a really ugly super kick from Zink, and then the crucifix gets the pin. 
Afterwards, yeah, Stud gives him the choke slam and the razor's edge, which I don't, the diamond mind, was that what they were calling it? I can't remember. Diamond death drop. Yeah, so uh, he gives him that to recover his heat, but uh, this seemed very random. And actually, I don't know if the tape is corrupted or what, but um, this match is not on the WWE Network version of this show. Really? Yeah, I had to look this up on uh, YouTube. The tape is not corrupted, I can say. Yeah, oh, I don't. Well, I mean, I don't know if like when they digitalized it, if it was, uh, if it screwed up or something. But weird, weird. I mean, that uh, seems like a very weird edit for them to make to not include one, this. One thing I did think is that Zenk was looking really small here. Uh, I don't know if it was just to, in comparison to. He seemed like he's bulked down. Like he. Well, he's had a lot of trouble with the law, so he probably don't want to be all roided up if he's having to go to court and all that with his drug possession charges. Yeah, God, things not going well for him. He's got HIV as well. Um, <laughs> God. <laughs> next match then. Uh, and it's PN fucking news. Yes. Stunning Steve Austin uh, in, a, in a TV title match. Now, before this match started, I wrote, it devalues the TV title for somebody like News to be challenging for it. Why? Um, He's won. He's on a roll. <laughs> um, now, to be fair to him, uh, he does a suplex, a snapmare, uh, a belly-to-belly suplex, and takes bumps during this match. I've got a feeling that Chad is going to be high on this. <laughs> I'm not high on the match. I did think uh, Austin still has Lady Blossom um, yes. at this point. Um, news yeah, final, final appearance, apparently. Yeah, I think this is it for her. Um, so News fires away early after Austin tried to jump him at the bell. News powers moves I did think actually looked good, like you mentioned with the power slam, the elbow. Uh, Austin bell to the outside. News follows. Austin gets sent into the guardrail. Um, he tries to slam News, but News lands on top of him. And then, uh, and then I don't know what News was going for—a a kick or a drop kick—but uh, it looked really bad. Um, suplex from Austin and he was way too close to the ropes um, and uh, News almost like hit the ropes on the way down on the suplex that looked really bad uh, News gets shoved to the rail but he back drops Austin in ugly belly to belly from News and he's starting to get very winded in this uh, four to five minute match uh, and Lady Blossom kind of distracts PN News. News follows him to the outside. Austin flies to the outside with an elbow to the back of the head that sends uh, News into the railing. And then News misses an avalanche in the corner, and Austin pins him with feet on the rubs. So uh, this was pretty much it for PN News. Um, kind of his one big shot. Well, um, I gave it two stars and said it's probably the best PN News match ever. Oh, okay. Uh, Meltzer went two and a quarter. Ooh, y'all were both higher than me. I went one and a half. Oh, wow. I thought you were the big PN News fan here. Uh, I, like, I like his rapping, not his wrestling. <laughs> um, one thing I really don't like about P- So people are fat in different ways, right? Uh, PN News is fat like a woman. Is, like he, his, he looks womanly with his with his weight. <laughs> Does that make any sense to you? Like, he, looks fe- he looks feminine to me, PN News. Okay. I, I just like this... Uh, type of fat you know like um i don't know earthquake does not look womanly with his fatness right or even like yokozuna he carries, I, I, it, he carries I guess, it well 
Yeah, he doesn't look menacing. He looks just like a fat guy, whereas Earthquake kind of looked like a badass in some yeah. ways. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. Like, being news just like somebody that's eating pretzels at the mall food court. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't... God, so that's it for him, is it? Do we see him anymore? I think he's at our next show, but as far as him getting any sense of kind of a push, this is it. Good. Good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Poor so, uh, Missy is with Marcus Alexander Bagwell now, and... Uh, and this was also a, cut. He doesn't make a pass at her, um, and she's a she's a bit upset that he, he, didn't, she, he didn't ask her on a date, so... There's this theme going on with Missy with the younger men. Because <laughs> um, she's like 27 and I was Bagwell like 21 or something. Yeah, he's got to be young at this point in time. Yeah. Right? Like he, that he, up. Lo- he looks really young, yeah. Um, Straight from Sprayberry High School, um, which was right next to where I used to live. Yeah, 1970, January 10th. So he was, yeah, right at uh, 21. I wonder if it's cut because uh, of Bagwell... You know, having heat with the company or something that they don't want to pay him to be on this. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if future Bagwell matches are cut. I doubt it, but there must be a reason why it's not on the tape, right? Right. Um, um, I don't know. It's very weird. Um, okay. Top 10 time. Number 10, Vader returning from Japan. Does it devalue the top 10 to have uh, somebody who hasn't had any matches breaking it for no reason just mm-hmm. to hype him? I guess putting him at number 10 is kind of a good clause faith, so I'm not number too bothered nine. by it. Number 9 is Bobby Eaton. Number 8, Bill Kazmaier. That devalues it. <laughs> <laughs> number 7 uh, is Cactus Jack. 6 is Barry Windham, who's out injured. Uh, 5 is Dustin Rhodes. 4 is Ron Simmons, who uh, is also injured. 3 is Steve Austin. Uh, 2 is Rick Steiner. 1 is Sting. And, of course, the champion is Lex Luger. I, I do like how they keep on going with this uh, rankings thing, though. It does yeah. give you, uh, you know, the illusion of everybody vying for something. Um, now, next match is Cactus Jack versus Meltzer's favourite, uh, Van Hammer. <laughs> um, truth or Consequences, very cool hometown. Um, and now a video from Van Hammer, which I think is one of the lamest things I've ever seen. <laughs> I thought it was awesome. Cutting edge. Uh, Van Hammer is just so annoying, isn't he? Um, <laughs> he, uh, he he comes out with his guitar and like there are fans in the crowd who've got like Van Hammer banners and things. Like what what were they thinking? You know, they, they can't be proud of themselves um, for that. <laughs> <laughs> These are the same people that are rapping PN news. So. I mean, at different points in your life, you do things that you regret, and uh, cheering for PN News and Van Hammer certainly qualifies as that. I can safely predict that there is no time in my life where I would have been caught dead doing either of those things. Well, um, yeah, true. I mean, I was a heel fan, even when I was a kid. So Yeah, well, not everybody was as uh, sophisticated a wrestling <laughs> fan as seven years old as you. You were cheering for IRS. That's almost as embarrassing. <laughs> Um, what do you make of uh, make of this one, um, Chad? Um, so, so yeah, this really is Meltzer divided. One of his favorite guys versus now we've learned his least favorite guy. Uh, Jack 
started off strong. I actually thought uh, Van Hammer hit a decent drop kick, sending Jack to the outside. Hammer follows him up with a weird dive, an ugly boot, and leg drop. So, uh, so, so he wasn't. He was very shortly in my good graces with the drop kick. And Ross, I thought, kind of did the Ross commentary where he's burying him, but he's not outright saying it. Um, so he was talking about how Van Hammer just wrestles with pure power and not much, uh, kind of technical expertise. Yeah. Um, pretty much more or less a burial, a uh, second turn buckle elbow smash to the outside hammers fires back and hits a stiff clothesline to the back of the head, which was uh, pretty reckless looking in its own right. Hammer tries to rally the crowd and hits a top rope knee to the head, but I, I, I this I thought was a little sad where he did his little clap and stomp and um, and really trying to get the crowd behind him, and the crowd was more or less not caring one bit. Uh, Jack kicks out of that. Both guys hit their heads. Jack gives uh, gets Hammer's guitar into his throat, and he drives it into his throat and pins him. Uh, so this ends Van Hammer's undefeated streak. And again, this is why I don't really know why uh, Meltzer was har- harping on Van Hammer so much. Because, I mean, we just saw the guy debut at the last clash, um, which was two months ago. So, I mean, they pushed him essentially heavy for two months. So it's not like he was getting this major, major push for months on end. He, he does say that it's Hammer's best performance thus far. Wow. This, this this match, I still don't really understand why he works with you know he works with a lot of super, you know a lot of throws and suplexes and things almost like a technical style of a Van Hammer, uh, despite the fact that he's obviously not the most technical technically gifted guy in the world. Yeah. Um, now, now I don't want to. I mean, I I don't want to bury. Uh, I, I actually thought during this match that Van Hammer wouldn't have looked out of place on um, some current WWE or like not current but. Like I always remember watching like a random uh, Ziggler match for like uh, about a year or so ago, where it was like Ziggler was doing everything 100 miles an hour, and it's like slow down, just slow down a little bit. And I thought Van Hammer reminded me of uh, some of those guys that you see now who who basically work everything really fast. Um, Hammer seemed like that to me, like no downtime in anything that he does. Doesn't pause, doesn't pace things out. I mean, maybe they they were told that they only had four minutes, so he was rushing, but. That was my note on Van Hammer. Any thoughts on uh, the pace? Um, well, I'm not the biggest Ziggler fan, but please do not compare him to Van Hammer ever again. Um, oh. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's I, I think that's unfair to the modern product. I mean, I mean, even at this time, you had somebody like Kurt Henning who was kind of doing that pace. I mean, as we see in our next match, pace overall, I don't think is a negative. You just have to learn how to pace your pace, which is a weird saying. But what I mean by that is you have to know kind of when to let the spots breathe. You have to know when to sprinkle in the spots you want to, to compose the match and uh, kind of build the match off of that way. So you can work a fast paced style and it'd be exciting. It's just how you present it and how you work around it. Okay. Um, well, I'm I'm still claiming Van Hammer could get over today. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you're you're getting some huge hill heat from that. <laughs> um, I did think that the finish of this match was terrible. 
Um, why would a guitar shot to the throat put you out in the manner that it did? Just looked really bad to me. Because it's like he, he doesn't, he just kind of jabs him with the, like, the, the, like, the V of the guitar. Right. Uh, I didn't think it looked like a very good, I wasn't convinced that that would send somebody out for three, you know. Um, so there we are. Um, now Ross, Jim Ross, uh, gets on the phone. Gets on Gary Michael Capetta's phone. <laughs> it does look like it's well. Um To uh, Eric Bischoff, uh, who is at the hospital, and uh, he's about 20 yards away uh, from the room that Sting is in, and uh, he reports on the condition of Sting. What do you think about this uh, idea of uh, phoning up the hospital live? <laughs> Again, I liked it as uh, overall Matt's narrative. Um, I, I, I thought it kept it like in our mind and stuff like that, so... Uh... Yeah, and I also thought this was one of the first clashes we've seen that really felt like TV, like an ongoing mm-hmm. TV story, you know? It was very uh, episodic. It almost reminded me of watching, like, a Raw or uh, or an old Nitro or something, you know? Yep. The, the way that this was structured with the ongoing narrative. Um, anyway, let's... Um, uh, oh, yeah, they, they, show a, uh, they show a recap of Wyndham's hand getting injured again, and uh, they show the, you know, the enforcers attacking his hand. Um, and I did get a comment about this that somebody was surprised that I didn't remember that this happened. For whatever reason, on my version, the attack was cut out of the Halloween Havoc. So I, I remember that Wyndham got his hand injured around this time. I didn't remember it, it necessarily happened at that show. So, mm-hmm. um, And then he hurts it again versus a jobber uh, <laughs> in a match. Now, is that was that legit, um, th- that footage? I don't, I don't think, they... I think that was building the uh, angle. Right, okay. Because uh, I didn't really see any evidence of the of the wrist being hurt in right. that match. Um, it's the Enforcers, uh, who are the champions, Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco, taking on Dustin Rhodes and a mystery partner. Um, so Dustin walks out with uh, Wyndham, who's got his hand taped up. Um, and uh, Wyndham gets on the mic and says, well, look, I'm sorry, fans. Uh, I can't wrestle this match. Um, so he welcomes a mystery partner. And a guy walks out with a dragon on his head, an actual dragon that looks like it was uh, bought from the Jim Henson Studios. <laughs> what do you think of this dragon mask? Um, I mean, knowing who it was, I guess it fit. Uh, Tony surmised that it could be somebody from Japan, which was kind of racist in some regards. Um I don't know. I didn't have a problem with it. I'm guessing you weren't as big a fan of it. Uh, it was all right. Okay. I thought it was okay. a bit kind of uh, hokey. You know, uh, well, I don't know. It was a bit. It was kind of quite high production values on the on the actual mask, I guess. You know. Right. Uh, um, anyway, of course, it's Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Um, now, Arn's reaction to all of this is priceless. Um, <laughs> what, what, what was your thoughts on the, the reveal here? Yeah, so the, so the reveal, honestly, is probably one of my uh, top five favorite moments in wrestling. Um, 1991's a weird year where, like I said, uh, I, I started watching in 90, but 91's when I really can remember stuff that I watched. Um, so I can remember, like, uh, Savage and Liz embracing at WrestleMania 7. Um, which to me is still to this day like my number one wrestling moment of all time. 
uh, I can remember vividly this reveal and being extremely pumped uh, that Steamboat was back and kind of running around my living room. And, and I think Anderson and Sabisco, the way they sell the, uh, the uh, surprise, really made it work. Where Sabisco's calling timeout, uh, Anderson's yelling at Ross and uh, Shivani and just looking absolutely uh, flabbergasted and then says, not Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's amazing. It's a really amazing reaction. Um, it's definitely, I guess, stoogy if you want to say that, but, but I think it's without a doubt, one of the best, uh, kind of stooge heel reactions that you can have. Yeah. It's phenomenal work from Arn and Larry here, especially Arn, uh, just his face and everything, like <laughs> the level of shock, <laughs> you know, um, I yeah we get uh so we obviously get a pretty good shine sequence at the start to establish a right. uh, steamer again, but just uh, just after that you get Arn shouting he's just a man remember he's just a man <laughs> right yeah uh so what do you think of this match uh Chad um so I guess there's this, I, I think there's gonna be a good bit to talk about with this match um so I'll kind of give my uh notes and then give my thoughts so like you said there was a huge uh, shine sequence house of fire for the faces all four come in they brought to the outside with the crowd popping huge uh, anderson gets posted we got a back elbow to zabisco inverted atomic drop and drop kicked arn and they regroup on the outside where he says that um he says that quote that you just said. Um, now, Larry has started using his cruncher moniker, which is an interesting nickname. Uh, Larry gets taken down again as Steamboat tags Dustin in. And I thought this was kind of interesting because if you look at the structure of the match, they had the sign sequence. Dustin gets tagged in. He's the underwing, you know, kind of the rookie. So I really expected... Um, you know, I, I think on the on the surface level that you'd expect, okay, this is where the enforcers take over on dust and do their face and peril sequence, um, and then we go to the finish. But that doesn't work here, where uh, they do some good arm work on Larry with them hanging on to it and attacking it in a variety of ways, including float over arm drags, post and neck karate thrust from the top, uh, a lot of different stuff. Um, Arn gets tagged in and takes control for just a split second, which again makes you think, okay, this is where they really kind of take over the control of the match. But uh, he charges in, um, Dustin charges in, Arn gets his knee up, Anderson goes on top, but he gets temporarily caught, does the rake of the eyes and hits the uh, axe handle. And then we get the boot scrape from Arn. So he does kind of um, take over here for a minute. Uh Dustin gets let up, uh, and then but he then sends the bionic elbow uh, to send the enforcers back to the outside again. Um, and and Ross on commentary, which again I thought they were fabulous on commentary for this match. He compares Dustin to Steve Avery, which is an obscure reference now, but Steve Avery part was a very young uh, up and coming Braves pitcher in 1991. And, and really looked like he could be like a star from years to come. It didn't quite turn out that way, but he seemed like kind of a blue chip prospect. Um, and then once again, we talked about in Howling Havoc, how the enforcers can slow the pace down. 
and really dictate the pace. And that's kind of what I was going into earlier, where you can work. You just have to know which pace you want to work in the match. And they do that here, where it's a great strategy for the enforcers to slow the pace down. And Larry does that. Um, and the announcers pick up on it. Uh, Steamboat goes right back to work and does Larry's karate kick. Uh, but the enforcers get the blind tag, the same kind of trick they did at Halloween Havoc. And this is when they really take over, surprisingly to me, on Steamboat. And once again, this is a great section by the enforcers um, where they just do everything. They pick up the pace. They're more ferocious. There's, uh, they completely cut off the ring. They do every trick in their book to kind of go Dustin in where they can double team. Uh, so Larry locks in the ab stretch with an assist from Arn, elbow and belly to back from Arn, uh, kind of focusing on the back of Steamboat. Uh, Arn puts his head down for the hope spot, but Larry just kind of comes in and tries to pin him quickly. Uh, Steamboat back gives out when he does a slam attempt. So this again showed that he maybe should trust his partner. He should have tagged out instead of going for the slam. Uh, tagged Arn and the bear hug is applied, which the crowd rallies behind this. Anderson hits a body scissors, uh, but Arn is able to turn it into a Boston Crab. Again, focusing on the back. Uh, Larry puts his arm on Arn's forehead for added leverage while he had the Boston Crab on, which I thought was great. Um, Larry then gets tagged in and walks the crab back to the corner, which, again, cutting off the ring, just absolutely a master class in heel tag team 101. Um, and then we get a, one another hope spot where Steamboat crawls and makes the tag, but the referee didn't see it. Uh, finally, he makes the tag for a, a huge pop. Uh, Arn tells Larry to cut him off, but it's too late, so he's able to make the hot tag. Dustin comes in, Lariat, a slam. He's a complete hash of, uh, house of fire. Um, and then he kind of pulls the trick out of the Enforcer's playbook he, after a few minutes where he gets a flash tag to Steamboat. Um, gives Arn the bulldog, and Larry tries to get himself DQ'd by throwing Steamboat over the top, but the referee missed that, which I thought was clever. And Steamboat comes in, hits the crossbody, and we got new tag team champions to a huge pop. Um, so this, to me, is uh, one of the most perfect template-type tag matches you can have where if, if you're asking me to close my eyes and think of a Southern-style tag match, this match pops into my mind. Um, I do think this is the best two-on-two tag match of the decade in the U.S. Uh, for me, and I went four and three-quarters. And uh, actually, this was my number two match of the year. Uh, for the year of 1991, even ahead of the uh, 420-1991 six-man that you reviewed from All Japan part of recently. Um, and, and kind of my reasoning for that. So so I'll just give some background quickly. For the top four matches of 1991, I went Savage Warrior number one. Uh, this number two, Chono versus Mudo uh, from the G1 Climax finals is number three. And then that six-man is number four. I think four great, great matches. Uh, to me, the difference is the top two just really hit me with an emotional punch that the bottom two don't. Um, and this match does that for me. I, I, it may be a little bit of nostalgia mixed in, but 
every time I watch it, I kind of go into this match with the understanding of maybe I'm just really overrating this match. And by the end of it, I'm just amazed at the work that was put into it, the way they built a story. They had the crowd popping huge. I don't think there was a weak link among the four. Um, I, I really love this match. This is one of my Desert Island matches. If you're wondering what match uh, Chad's talking about, the six-man is Masawa, uh, Kawada, and Kabashi taking on Jumbo. Uh, uh, t- t- I never it's say- uh, Taue and uh, Fuji. Tawe Fuji, and I never know how to say Jumbo's surname, Chad. Uh, to Surta. Saruta. Saruta, yeah. Jumbo Saruta, yeah. Um, um, so, and I gave that match five stars. I gave this four and three quarters. Right. Uh, so I'm right with you. Great match, great booking. Um, I really love... So there's that initial shine that establishes uh, Steamboat, and then there's the the kind of face control sequence uh sequence on Zabisco's arm really mm-hmm. simple but effective psychology doing that part of it and it also establishes like Steamboat as a technical baby face as well you know he's got game plan he's going to work the arm um, he's got Dustin kind of under his wing now who's going to who's you know talented enough to you know catch on that I have to work the arm as well um, so I thought that was a really cool dynamic between the two of them in their first match together right um and then I thought that um, it's obviously like Arn and Larry, their character work is fantastic during this match. I mean, what better face in peril could you want than Steamboat? And what and what better team working the heat sequence could you want than the Enforcers? So it's like the perfect face in peril, the perfect guys to work uh, over that face in peril. So I don't really, like, for a two-on-two tag match that goes 15 minutes, more or less perfect. Um I was interested to ask you, Chad. You were very high on uh, Andersons versus Rock and Rolls uh, all the way back in what was it, Starcade '86? Yeah. Uh, and I seem to remember you gave that match five stars. Did you? No, no, no. No, you didn't. Yeah, but, this uh, is. Uh, I, I can just quickly say this is the highest. I would rank this the highest of any NWA or WCW tag that I've seen. That includes the uh, Clash One tag. Um, that I like a lot. That includes Final Conflict, and uh, that includes the uh, Rock and Roll Midnight Express, any of their iterations, or the Fantastics Midnight Express. This is and, number one for me. And Rock and, rock and Rolls versus Russians? Yes, that, that I have um, right below this level, but uh, I have this as number one. Okay, well, well very high praise from Chad. And, I mean, I, I've got it right there at four and three quarters. I'm, I'm with him. Um, I think the booking helps it as well. There's great booking here. Uh, the reveal, I mean, I don't know if you include that as part of the match or not, but it plays into the narrative of the match. The right. fact that they weren't expecting, um, they weren't expecting Steamboat. Um, so their kind of game plan is thrown off a bit. Psychology is brilliant in this match. So no arguments from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I do not agree though that six man that six man all Japan tag is just a you know for me one of the best matches I've ever seen um, like period you know it goes 45 minutes multi-layered um, I'd be surprised if any match beats that for 1991 for me uh, I certainly wouldn't have Savage Warrior above it uh, so but I guess you would have been able to predict that right Chad yeah I mean to me Savage Warrior is um 
Real quickly, that match is, I, I feel like I've talked a lot about that match, but that match for me is just, it's the pinnacle of WWF storytelling. Um, and, and, and really watching this match and thinking about my rankings for 1991, I really realized that I've, I've, I've never kind of considered myself a, a feel a feel guy with my match ratings. And by that, I mean, like if the, if the match gets me kind of warm and fuzzy or kind of conjures up different complex thoughts, I, I've never thought of myself as that. I've thought of more of myself as the technical aspect of it but um but i started thinking about it i mean there's a lot of like battle arts matches for example which is a shoot style that i know you don't like parv but i i do like shoot style um there's some battle arts matches in the late 70s that i think are very technically masterpieces and um even like a match in 1997 between Ishikawa and Akeda that uh, Charles, our friend Charles, ranked at five stars. And I mean, I thought that was a great match. I think I had it four and a quarter, four and a half, one or the other, but it didn't hit me with that emotional punch. And I go back and think about the matches that I have ranked five stars, and they all had sort of an emotional tinge on them where I, I, I think you can stand by the work in them. But the way they sort of connected with me on an emotional level, they worked. Uh, even with the All Japan stuff that I've ranked five stars. Um, and then that six-man, there was just, I, I think the action's fantastic, and there's a lot of interwoven storylines there. But I just didn't quite get that emotional connection to that match. Uh, likewise, like the first Jumbo versus Masawa match from 6-8-90, that does have the emotional connection for me but it doesn't have the technical expertise to kind of push it over the top as a uh, five-star match. So I have that at four and a half. So I started, I really thought about that a lot with uh, watching this match and kind of why and how, because it's, you know, sometimes you just throw your rankings out there. Um, While I'm watching the years in order, I kind of just throw stuff out there. But before I make my top 100, I really kind of look into and trying to get the minutia of why I, picked and put certain stuff ahead of other stuff and uh that's kind of the conclusion i came to you're uh, challenging uh, the stereotype of you chad there uh that i uh, <laughs> I, I i seem to recall a show recently that the place to be guys put out uh where uh, where you joined the halloween party <laughs> uh, yeah there was a halloween party that was better in 1982 with tito santana do you remember uh, and uh, i i feel that uh you know, you, you do have to have them. You do. I think emotion is part of wrestling, and that you do have to. Uh, you do have to take it into account. You know, um, like I, I mean, I'll give you a good example. The, I've been quite high on some of that lucha stuff I've been watching, and uh, like back on the, in the eighties, lucha uh-huh. stuff. I don't feel any emotional connection to it at all. Right. So I don't have like I don't feel any like doesn't hit me. So even though I. You know, I was high on that stuff. I don't know if it'll, it'll stay with me. Does that make any sense mm-hmm. to you? Yes. Um, so, yes. Um, let's move on. Um, we, we will touch more on that match because I think there's a couple of questions that people have asked us, so we'll return to it at the end. Um, Paul E has got the contract for the US title match now, um, and uh, he points to page 12, section 6.1, <laughs> article 6. <laughs> There is a forfeit clause, essentially. Um, if Sting does not appear um, before the bell rings, 
he not only loses the match, he loses the belt. Oh, what do you think about this as an angle? Yeah, I like this. Uh, Paulie doing his manager duties. Um, again, this is fine. I mean, uh, I mean, we just saw this great tag match, and this this clash does have a lot of fluff. But the way they interwove the whole U.S. Championship storyline and um, and this uh, and the and the tag match kind of surrounding it, I thought was really great. Um, some some of the best storytelling we've seen, I think. Right on this, on this show. Agree. Uh, Ross uh, gets on the phone again. He tells Eric in a hurry, look, uh, you know, Paulie's got this contract. Um, and then Eric tells us that Sting is on fire and he's on his way back. He's commandeered an ambulance. <laughs> and he's, uh, so I guess he's got the police after him as well because you can't just steal an ambulance. Um, and he's on his way, uh, he's on his way back to defend the title. Um, so, you know, quite, quite exciting. Can Sting make it back in time yes. before the bell goes? Um, so to eat up a bit of time before then, we now have Johnny B. Bad taking on Flying Brian for the uh, light heavyweight title. Um, and uh, one little note I have going into this. Referee Mike Atkins. Now, is he new? Because uh, I've never noticed him before. No, he's been around. Uh, it's just the first time I've noticed. Like, he looks a little bit like Pee Wee Anderson, I guess. Yeah. And I just never... I never really noticed him. He's like so. the number three or number four referee around this time. Yes, and uh, Jim Ross says that Johnny B. Bad had to struggle to make weight for this because you have to be under 236, 236 pounds. And uh, Bad uh, so has dropped some poundage to, to make this, which I'm assuming is just kayfabe. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the only other note I've got going into this is that immediately he should have been DQ'd for punches. Uh, punches <laughs> in the corner. Right in front of a referee, Mike Atkins, DQ, please. Um, over to you, Chad. So the the rule book uh, stickler here. Um, <laughs> uh, so so yeah, so uh, Bad is in his white sailor outfit, and the confetti fires off below. Uh, Bad did start off with a lot of early punches. Pillman fires back with chops, drop kicks in the air. Pillman, uh, Bad sends Pillman from the ramp to the railing, throat first. So, again, some uh, focused attack on Pillman of the throat. Pillman regains the advantage but gets uh, knees to the gut off a big dive from the top. Bad goes to the top, and Pillman hits a drop kick uh, from the bottom to thwart that attempt. Big running clothesline, spinning kick by Pillman gets near fall. Uh, Bad now is able to hit a flying clothesline. I thought there was a lot of kind of shifts in this match, probably too many for the uh, amount of time they were going. Bad again tried that sunset flip from the top, which does not look good now in two shows in a row. So I think he needs to shell that move from his repertoire. Um Bad has the pin on uh, on Flying Brian, but Teddy had the ref distracted, which was pretty shoddy managerial work on his part, I thought. And almost then uh, the Fuji level, yeah, yeah, that was that was almost him challenging uh, his newly won world title to a, a fresh Hogan. Uh, Pillman sends Bad into long and then rolls him up for the win. Uh, not bad again for five minutes, but I did think there was too many shifts and um, almost too much stuff they crammed into that. I gave it two stars. And then afterwards, uh, we get the breakup where Bad gives the left hook to Teddy Long. So that's the end of that relationship. Two, two and a half from me, two and a half from Meltzer. I should have mentioned that um, four and a quarter from Meltzer on the on the Enforcers tag. Mm-hmm. So 
he's not anywhere near as high as we are. And uh, have you have you ever had a look like are the Scott Keiths and stuff as uh, as high as us on, on that? Um, I know I know everybody likes it, but um, I mean I, I know Charles has it at four and three quarters as well. Um, I'm looking at Scott Keith right now, so I have it up here. Um, let me see. Yeah, and I, I he know, gives uh, it five stars. Oh, he gives it five stars. He gives it five stars. Wow. Wow, monster rating. Shocking. Uh, so we get the full Monty from him. Yeah, and no, let, let me check uh, our old buddy Penny Cord as well. Uh, I'm always interested uh, to see where he goes. Real quickly, uh, while we're doing this, uh, I, I want to mention the, the Halloween Havoc Simmons Luger match. That may be one of the most decisive matches uh, in the history of our run, where we've had uh, some lively Facebook discussions, me and Scott Cruscolo, over that match. Um, where are these? Uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen these discussions. I yeah, this is in our our little chat. Uh, he he basically surmises that Luger was blown up very early on, and that affected the match overall. So it's uh, it's been Team Chad and Team Brad versus uh, Scott in those discussions. A- a- absolutely incorrect there, Mr. Criscolo. Not for the first time. Uh, no, he's not right. It's uh, Luger massively carried that match, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. So, um, Pedicore went four and three quarters. As right. Well. Yeah, and I mean this this is a match that I knew was universally praised. So yeah, so Meltzer the low vote there of everybody. Uh, interesting. Uh, and let's see what Meltzer says here. Uh, blah blah blah. In what ca- came? Blah blah blah. I don't know. He just doesn't really have a lot to say. Just gives it four and a quarter. So there we go. Um, so what? Where where are we now? Uh, oh yes, uh, Jim Ross um, goes all the way back now to Roy Shires um, and Ray Stevens to talk about the history of the U.S. title, where he says that the U.S. titles always had this clause in it, going back to Roy Shires in the fifties and the sixties. Now this is a mistake by Jim Ross. Um, I, I went and checked the title lineages because it didn't sound right to me that. This U.S. title is, you know, goes back to San Francisco. Incorrect, Ross. This <laughs> this U.S. title goes back to 1975 and is the Mid-Atlantic title, the Crockett U.S. title, obviously, um, not the Roy Shire San Francisco version, which which was first held by Roy Shire uh, by Ray Stevens in in the 60s. So, um, just a little bit of trivia there. Um, I just thought it was really weird for Ross to randomly name Roy Shires on uh, on TV there. Right. Um, so there we go. Uh, because uh, they would, in the late 70s, the This US title and the San Francisco one would be just right, you know, they just run the US title in the, in the Carolinas and in San Francisco as two separate titles. Um, anyway, it's Rick Rude. Uh, versus Sting, but of course Sting is still at the hospital, um, and uh, it's really funny now because uh, Paulie takes to the ring. He cuts uh, a pre-match uh, promo, which I thought was pretty uh, pretty good work from Paulie here. Yeah. And then he wants the ref to ring ring the bell, ref. Come on. Um, what what do you think of this uh, performance from Paulie here? Oh, this is uh, really Paulie and his sneaky element, kind of. <laughs> I guess this may be where your mastermind talk comes about. 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, it seems like it seems like he either hired Luger or he collaborated with Luger right. in order to get Sting out of this match. So definitely is uh, jumping on the uh, advantageous circumstances that are going on right now. And well, he dropped. He does that uh, uh, interview earlier where he's like. Uh, you know, I thought the uh, behavior by Luga was despicable. He distances himself, mm-hmm. uh, which suggests that secretly they're in league. Like he's he's cut a deal with Harley Race and or Mister Hughes or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so then what ha- what happens? Uh, Chad does Sting make it to the match? Yeah. So uh, we we the count starts. We see Sting hobbling uh, from the ambulance into the arena. He does. Uh, he does kind of, he is going to make it, but Rude ends up meeting him in the ramp when he realizes that. Um, big pop for this. And then Sting gives a military press to Rude on the ramp. And um, while this happened, I, I kind of made a note that I think this is the biggest Sting has ever looked like a star um, until probably 1997. Yeah, Meltzer says here, uh, Sting, who hijacked an ambulance from Parts Unknown Medical Center back to the Civic Center, <laughs> arrived in just in the nick of time. It was pretty, it was pretty predictable, almost too hokey, although this was probably the best job they've done in getting Sting over as a face since the horseman turned on him in early 1990. So he makes a similar point. Yeah, I thought this was... Um very very good work on sting and then Polly crack uh we got the uh, sting house of fire inside the ring clothesline from rude to the outside uh and so that gets another huge pop with rude on the outside i thought ross was tremendous on commentary in this match he, he had a huge panic in his voice the whole match it was yeah. very frantic, and at the amount of time they went on this match, it was very appropriate for him to have that kind of elevated, frantic tone to his voice. Uh, Rude finally is able to grab the leg and post it. The crowd kind of groans at that, so the crowd was very connected into this match. Uh, Steen fires back, but Rude fires into the into the uh, knee uh, with his strikes, which I thought was smart. Paulie cracks him with his phone. <laughs> Ross calls uh, Polly a jerk, which was kind of a funny moment. Uh, that gets a near fall, and Ross is now openly cheering for Sting when he kicks out. Uh, Sting gets a DDT. Polly is absolutely losing his shit on the outside. I thought this was a great heel performance, a managerial performance of him losing it, uh, thinking he had the perfect plan and seeing it come to go to go away at points during this match. Um, so he gets up on the apron, screen grabs him, and Rude clips the knee, and then he rolls him up and uh, holds the tights and wins the U.S. belt. Uh, one of my favorite five-minute matches of all time. I went three stars on it. Um, just great stuff. Meltzer also gave it three stars. Um, now I haven't given it a rating chat because I thought it was just, this was more of an angle, a way to get the title off staying and onto rude without making sting look like a chump. Um, so I just thought it was a really, really good angle. Uh, you know, well, really well executed angle. Great work from Paulie. Um, you know, it was the action was heated in the in the four minutes that we got. Um, but I just don't know if I can call it a match. I, I don't know. Um, I three star seems fair for for everything. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't be against that idea. Um, so 
Yeah, this is probably one of the better executed angles I can think of they've done in some time. Right. Probably, like, all the way since, like, Funk putting the bag over Flair's head. And all yeah, that's, that's uh, right where I'd be at. I think this is the best stuff uh, since 1989, so. Yeah. Uh, Ron Simmons now uh, is out, and he thanks the cards for all of the get well. Uh, he thanks the fans for all of the get well cards he's been receiving. Uh, and he's focused on getting his hands on that world title, uh, which was his, uh, you know, his aim at Halloween Havoc. So a good way to keep him in fans' minds here uh, while he's out. Yeah, he suffered a legit broken wrist in the Havoc match, so um, this was good. This was a fine promo. And then, finally now, we have the main <sighs> event of Lex Luger taking on Chad's favorite, Rick Steiner. Uh, no. What did you think of this one? Yeah, this felt like a very throwaway t- uh, title defense for Luger. Um, I, th- I thought it kind of weird psychology to start with the deliberate pace, which um, can work. I mean, I, I do appreciate that at times, but after, I guess, the veracity and the uh, ferociousness of the Sting Rude match, this felt really slowed down. Um, Rick gains the advantage with the power slam and Steiner line. When uh, Luger regroups, Luger fires away, but Rick is unfazed and no selling that. Rick gets a relief German suplex. Uh, Luger's able to come back and gain the advantage with a clothesline. He takes over and scrapes the eyes of Rick. Suplex by Luger. He's thrown to the outside. Now Harley Race kicks on uh, Rick Steiner, too, which I cheered. I popped for that. Uh, <laughs> Rick gets it into the guardrail. Um, he make he, and then he starts making his comeback. Hits a few punches and a power slam for two. Um, he hits the top rope bulldog, which I thought was interesting in that we saw the diamond stud do that uh, whole uh, do that maneuver earlier. So kind of again where that was sort of bad booking, I guess, on WCW's part that we'd already seen this move before. Uh, in the night, so I wouldn't have done that again. I'd have saved that for the main event if they knew Rick was going to do that. Uh, in fact, Luger has to put his foot on the rope to kind of uh, escape getting pinned there off of that move. Middle rope, belly to belly. Uh, Hughes comes in, gets back dropped into the ring, and uh, Scott gives him the Frankensteiner. So we got all the people kind of in and out of the ring. The referee's distracted. Rick hits another belly to belly. While Harley races on the uh, apron, and then Rick suplexes Harley Race in, which shows a lack of focus on Rick's part at not going after the world title. Uh, Luger's able to grab the belt and hit Rick to retain. I thought this was a nothing match. Um, most disappointing match of Luger's reign here. Two stars for me. I liked it a little bit more than you, uh, Chad, but that's because I'm just a mark for Luger doing clotheslines on anybody. I just, I just like, uh, just like the way it looks. But um, about two and a half for me, two and a quarter from Meltzer. Yeah, uh, not really. This was very throwaway, and it kind of like, I don't know. This is going to be a criticism that I'm going to be making time and again. But uh, I, I feel like WCW from this point on have a habit of making the world title not seem as important as other things going on in the promotion um like uh, there's a period where i think they almost make the u.s title seem more important uh mainly doing rude's whole run here now um just i don't know this seemed less important than what was happening with rude and sting would you agree with that yeah we'll have to uh we'll have to earmark that um 
I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see as we go into 92. It's, it's especially a criticism during uh, Simmons' run um, that I will make again. But, uh, yes, I, did, I don't know. It made the, title, the world title seem mid-cardy to me, this. Um, I mean, do you buy Rick Steiner as a main eventer? Like, do you think that's... Nah. Do, you, do, you, yeah, do you see nah. the Steiners as main event guys nah. at this point? Yeah, absolutely not. I thought... Uh, I mean, I, I thought Scott versus... Um, Scott versus Flair in January was a bad use of him, and I thought this was even worse use of Rick, so... Yeah, uh, what we didn't mention is that Luger's got a fat lip and a black eye doing all of this. Do, uh, do you know how he did that, Chad? No, I don't know what the deal was. Yeah, uh, he, uh, he he basically uh, it was courtesy of a crossed up high spot earlier in the week <laughs> against against Tom Zenk of all people. So uh, maybe Luger's also got HIV now. Uh, Keith's <laughs> ranking for Luger versus Steiner a fourth yeah. of a star. Oh, <laughs> it's not that bad, uh, Scott. Come on. Now. <laughs> Uh, two two stars from a uh, petty cord. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. Um, shall we go into the end of show awards? Yeah. Um Match of the night yeah, is pretty obvious. Pretty it's a no-brainer. I will uh, say I could see an argument for Sting versus Rude in some of our lesser cards that we watched um, of this year. Yes. Yes. So. Uh, there's also MVP. I think that's a more interesting question. A, a range of different people that you could go for. Yeah, MVP is very tough. Uh, I could see arguments for Paul E. Rude, Sting, um, Arn, Steamboat. Uh, kind of a bevy of options here, which is odd. Um, God, I, I hate going for kind of, I guess, what might be perceived as the cliche answer for me and going with Arn, but uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Arn. It's, uh, I thought he was masterful again in that tag match, and just everything he did around this time really felt like he was able to toe the line from still being a main event player and acting like one and being a wily veteran. Like, I don't think that's a role that gets played up that much in wrestling history where a lot of times these stars, it's just like overnight they feel old, you know? Um, I mean, I mean, race, for example. Race went from being uh, NWA touring heel to feeling pretty old when he was in the King gimmick. Uh, same same for Flair, um, I'd, I'd say, after a point in time, probably when he dressed as a woman, he felt, I mean, it's just like, here we go again. He's just old. Um, uh, so so I thought the way Orrin kind of plays it up here is it's very unique and uh I'm going to give him the nod. I don't know. It's very tough. I, I do. I mean, would you agree that there's a clear sense, even though Zabisco is probably older than Arn, there's a clear sense that Arn is the, if you had to say who is the main one of the enforcers, the leader of that team, it looks like Arn. It seemed like, you know, it was Steamboat and Arn and Dustin and Larry. That's still kind of the way they paired off in that early going. Right. Would you agree with that? that it was kind of, that was the featured, the featured duel in that match with Steamboat and Arn. Yes, yeah, I can see him. Um, yeah, my uh, my pick is also on Chad. I, I hate to be boring, but he was just phenomenal. I mean, just for his reaction alone. Um, on any other show, this uh, would have been poorly dangerously for me. On any other show, but because um, he was really good in making that whole angle work. But uh, on 
just in the match and in all the stuff around the match was phenomenal tonight. Um, Billy Graham Award winner. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's not. I guess there's not. Even though the stuff that was bad, I thought was pretty, uh, pretty inoffensive and quick. I, I would guess I would have to give it to our boy PN News. I uh, thought he got progressively more winded in that match with Austin. So oh, I feel harsh because I have I just given it to PN News every. Yeah, season, so. I kind of <laughs> had to give it a parting shot to him. Um, I don't know. Missy Hyatt's hair wasn't very good. <laughs> no, Van Hammer. Van he Hammer. Sucks. He sucks for his entrance alone for that video. Fuck! Oh, I just hate the guy. Um, Van Hammer for me is my uh, uh, Billy Graham Award winner. So, um, so that brings us to some of the questions that we've received on the Facebook, and uh, I guess I'll go to a couple of comments uh, that people uh, wrote on uh, placed uh, on Pro Wrestling Only as well. Um, just on the just on the Facebook group, uh, Chad, we have, we have a couple of questions. Yes. Um, so Steve Steve J Rogers. Um, uh, he says, where does the, that rank among the best or worst wrestler must get back before the show ends angles? Uh, we gave it some pretty high praise. Can you think of any others? Yeah, must... to me, to me, it's up there. Um, I think of Austin for some reason. Yeah, there's he did a couple that were pretty good. Uh, and But more, I guess, I, I guess his more memorable ones to me are sort of surprises with... Uh, him coming out in the Foley rock match and hitting the chair. Um, I mean, this is certainly better than Goldberg coming back from the attack on Liz where he sexually assaulted her at the Abaca gym on the January 4th, 99 Nitro. Um, I, I, I can't think of one that eclipses this for me right off the top of my head. No, I'm the, I, would, I would say it probably is the best one. I can't think of any others. Uh, it's not a very long list, though, because I can't think of that many. Uh, one thing I will say that I think I like about this is the attack was, like we were talking earlier about whether the attack was dastardly enough. It was, I think, perfect in the sense that it was pretty dastardly and some damage was done, but it wasn't inconceivable that you could see Sting coming back. You know, if he really had the determination to come back. Because um, because another one that popped in my head is like when Eddie Gilbert runs over Jerry Lawler with the car in 1990, that memorable angle. Um, I mean, that's a great moment, but Lawler got ran over by a car. He should have been gone for a month, and he was back at the end of the show. So it felt kind of lessened to a certain extent because, well, the impact of that wasn't uh, – wasn't put over because now he's he's back and you know uh, wanting revenge on Gilbert already. Uh, Darren Richard Healy says, "Give a big shout out for Rick Rude, please, Chad." And <laughs> the man Rude was good. He was, uh, I think, an MVP uh, contender. And like I think you said last time, that Rude's run coming up on uh, coming up here is one of your favorite runs. And oh yeah, this is definitely peak Rude we're entering. So. Maybe one of my favorite years of every, maybe one of my favorite years of any worker. Yeah. Um, I request that Parv gives us a live update on the Cowboys Jags game. Hopefully, Parv can be token Jaguars fan. Uh, they'll be there soon, anyways. From Justin Pratt, 
Well, Justin, uh, the it's currently 4 p.m. here in the UK, and the match has not started because they're trying this 6 p.m. slot at Wembley today. My friend is there. I could have gone, but I uh, I, I I chose not to this time. Um, yes, uh, so the, the score is currently 0-0, and they haven't started. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time this goes... Uh, by the time you hear this, it would have happened a week ago. So, right. um, breaking uh, breaking kayfabe a little bit there, Chad. Right. Um, I will say, I uh, I don't see um, I don't see the UK fans all becoming token Jaguar fans. Oh, I don't yeah. see that. Yeah. I don't see that happening. Although it seems to be an idea that has traction stateside, right? Uh, well, I, I mean, the and Justin, he lives in the Florida area, so he can attest to this, but. Uh, I mean, the Jacksonville Jaguars just have about the most malice fan base, just a fan base that people don't care. They don't sell out their home games. Um, there's just not a lot of kind of clamoring or support for them down there. I mean, they certainly haven't had a team that kind of vindicates that either, but uh, – but it feels like if you could take any one NFL franchise and put it either in London or in uh, Los Angeles, kind of the two big, big markets, those seem like the, the obvious easiest choice where you get the least resistance from the uh, home fans. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, though, because I could, I could also see it working ridiculously to their advantage to have an entire country. Like, that's a pretty big catchment area. Right. Uh, I mean, I know all the profits go to the NFL, right? But seems to be that would maybe a huge cash cow for them if they. My friend thinks it's definitely going to happen, whether we whether people want it or not. Oh, that they'll is. have a London team. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be trending that way. Um, yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. But this is not an NFL podcast. <laughs> it is a wrestling podcast, uh, Justin. So, uh, um, Joel Barnett, is this the best clash? Where does the tag title rank in all-time WCW matches and also has a pop-the-crowd surprise? Right. Um, so, is this the best clash? Um, best clash, probably not. Um, I, I, I would have Clash 1 over this, even with the Sting Flair match that I wasn't as high on. I think that is the uh, that's the number three match on that show. And I think the uh, opener between the Midnight's and Fantastics and the uh, Arn uh, Barry versus, or I'm sorry, uh, Luger and uh, tag match kind of overcompensates for that. The the uh, the tag match tag title change. So that had three very good matches on it. Clash Nine is another one I'm kind of bait, batting around. Um, but, but, yeah, this is probably certainly a top five clash, I think it's safe to say, overall. Uh, my sleeper pick is still always Clash 4, which I'm big on. Yeah, you know. right. Um, so, but I think Clash 9 is a pretty good show as well. Yeah, Clash 4 is a good show. But, but yeah, this is one of the top ones. Um, um, where does the tag title rank in all time WCW matches? Yeah, so, so uh, what are we calling WCW? From 1990 on or from... Let's call it from the Turner buyout '88. Okay, so from Turner buyout in '88, I would have uh, at least two of the Flair Steamboat matches ahead of it. Um, the last two, Flair Funk, uh, Flair Funk from Great American Bash ahead of it. Uh, probably the I Quit as well. 
And and then um, I don't want to show my hands, but there's another match coming up fairly soon that will probably be ahead of it. Um, and then that's it. So it's top ten. I'd have uh, I'd have at least one or two of the Flair Luger matches over it too. Uh, yes, I I think the Flair. I'm sure I rated at least one of those five stars at some point. Uh, can you think of any Flair Luger? Uh, I mean, I don't. I know I didn't. I mean, I, to me, their best match is Russell War '90, and I have that at four and a half. So I have this ahead of that. Um, I mean, Flair Luger was a, a series that they produced a lot of great matches, but I don't think they ever reached kind of the five star level for me. Um, I don't know. I, I have to go back through. I, I've, I've never written down my uh, where the big boys played uh, rankings, uh, ratings and things. And I'm regretting that now because uh, uh, it would be handy to be able to pull them up. You know? Oh, I, uh, I, yeah. And I just remembered another match. There's a uh, I mean, I, I, I guess we're not going. It's no surprise that. that so the, so to me, the, the matches, those are the matches that I've ranked ahead of it behind us. So I, I, I'm willing to take a stand and I'm going to say this is right now. I have it behind uh, Flair Steamboat Clash 6, which is number one for me. Uh, Flair Steamboat Wrestle War 89. Uh, Flair Funk Great American Bash '89. I'm gonna put it behind Flair and uh, Steamboat Shy Town Rumble, and I actually think I'm gonna put it ahead of uh, Flair Funk. I quit only because I like the finish of this one a little better. So of the uh, matches we've watched, I got this as number five. Um, now the matches coming up ahead. Uh, the only two contenders I can think of right off the top of my head are uh, Wrestle War '92, the War Games, and um, and then Rey Mysterio versus Eddie Guerrero from the Halloween Havoc '97. Right. So, so you put this above the '91 uh, War Games. This is above the '91 War Games, which again I had at four and a half. Uh, I think when we did that show, I said you asked me if this was at that match was the WCW match of the year, and I said there was one coming up that I had ahead of it, and uh, that was this match. Okay. Um, yes, uh, I think that there is another match upcoming, which you haven't mentioned, Chad, that I may have up there with this one. If it's if it's uh, which is it Sting Vader or is it uh, Vader Flair? No, it's uh, Rude Steamboat. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm interested in the Iron Man match because I know that's a match that sometimes gets talk as the best WCW match of all time, and I've I've liked that match a lot when I watched it, but I, I've never kind of gotten that type of buzz. So I'm interested to rewatch that one. It's been a while. Yeah, I am too. I just remember being really hyped for that finish uh, right when i watched it you know years ago so um okay so i hope that answered that question yeah let uh, i want to give a shout out to um to to all our commenters uh darren he's been listening to a lot of our shows uh, actually helping us when we have some shows that are down on itunes uh, so he's been helping us out there and uh, I've interacted with Pratt and uh, Steve Rogers a good bit. And then uh, Joel Barnhart, he is on the extra point at Place to Be Nation. He's the uh, resident baseball expert for Place to Be Nation and gives us a lot of shout-outs on that show. So thanks a lot, Joel, for listening. Great. And I, I, I do have one uh, – I, I just hitting up our comments for Halloween Havoc. Uh, 
I just want to get to this business of the pumpkin, Chad, before we go. Stephen Graham of the Pro Wrestling uh, Super Show, and uh, he's doing the All Japan Excite series with me. Um, he has got some beef with you over the company, over the pumpkin business. Uh, and, he, and, and he's kind of thrown down a little bit of a gauntlet challenge to you about uh, roasted pumpkin and chili powder and uh, any. Um, any thoughts on pumpkins, Chad? Yeah, so, Stephen, if you've listened to his shows, I don't think it, uh... <laughs> I don't know, I, I gotta choose my words wisely here. Uh, St- Stephen roasted pumpkin seeds, I will say, was not a surprising development for me, but I think if you uh, know much about myself, uh friends with me on facebook it should be fairly obvious that i uh, do uh, enjoy some grass-fed uh, beef from time to time as a meal um so so pumpkin seeds pumpkin overall and sweet potatoes are uh, probably absolutely there's there's very few foods. I mean, nobody likes Brussels sprouts, right? So I don't include that. But uh, but like Brussels sprouts, beets, pumpkins, and sweet potatoes are right off the top of my head the only four foods that I do not like. You just have to have them with bacon and uh, chestnuts. Yeah. Uh, the Brussels sprouts, that makes them worth eating. But just tell it like it is, Chad. Stephen Graham is a limp-wristed vegetarian, basically. <laughs> yeah, the bit I... Uh... Grow up and eat some meat. What a, what a hipster! <laughs> I mean, this this guy, veg, when he announced he was a vegetarian, I, I can't. I wish there'd have been a webcam of how much my eyes rolled in the back of my head. Here. <laughs> no, well, I was going all those uh, dates and things earlier in the year, Chad. That was my number one thing. If you're vegetarian, you're out straight away. Yeah, just, just just no way. Gluten free is getting like that for me. How everybody's <laughs> gluten free now? I mean, come on. It's just, I mean, it's, uh, people people well, have lived hundreds of years and not knowing what gluten free is. I mean, I understand that. I mean, if you if you are fine, but you don't have to announce it. That's that's the, I think the biggest <laughs> problem is now. When people go to restaurants, it's an announcing of, oh, I'm gluten free. So, the you know, it's like the shelf has to accommodate. I don't know. I, I'm just like the opposite of a vegetarian, Chad. Not only do I eat meat and things, I actually want, like, I don't care. The animal can suffer for my pleasure. I'm happy with it. You know? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, more on that. Uh, Pete wanted us vegetarian versus uh Southern Bobby Flay style cooking throwdown. <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, Stephen says to mix those together and you get an amazing soup. Come on, man. <laughs> we eat chili down here, boy. What we gonna uh, What we gonna do next time, uh, Chad? Is it Starcade? It is Starcade time. Uh, so that'll wrap up the pay per view supercard portion of our WCW year. So we'll uh, have that for you hopefully in a couple weeks. Um, I think I think I know we said the first and third Sunday. So November is one of those weird months where uh, the thirtieth, the last day of the month, is actually on a Sunday. So it, it may uh, Starcade will probably shoot for probably December 7th on that. Um, so be on the lookout for that. And this show will be uh, November 16th, which is you're listening to it. But uh, yeah, this, this was a good show. It was an easy watch. So if you have it on the network, if you have the network, I'd recommend blowing through this one. Yep. And keep those comments going on Facebook. It's quite fun. Sure. Enjoy it. Yep, absolutely. All right. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts, 
and the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.